You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Our guest today is Carol Gundlach a policy analyst from Alabama Arise to talk about the expenditure of funds from the American Rescue Plan and their fight to end the grocery tax. We're talking about a clip from a recent city council meeting. We're defending Chicago teachers from a progressive and more on today's Valley Labor Report. Uh, If you want to be part of the program today, we've got a phone number. You can call 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And you can also leave a voicemail throughout the week. And uh, we might play it on the show if it is particularly good or particularly bad. Either way works. If you hadn't gotten enough of us by the time that we rap on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online. We are on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, all at the Valley Labor Report. And uh, just a reminder before we get started here today, your support keeps us on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program or make a one-time donation, you can go to unionly.io slash o slash tvlr. That is unionly.io slash o slash TVLR or patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. And if you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. So um, let's go ahead and, and get right to it since we had some technical difficulties. We'll, uh, we'll jump right in. Uh, the first thing that we wanted to talk about, and I, cannot, I can't believe that we're still having to talk about this. It's insane because it's so clear to anybody, it seems to me it's so clear to anybody with like j- just a sense of like what is good and just. <laughs> it, 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 I I can't. I mean, like this isn't even something like that that um that conservatives and liberals or or leftists or whatever. Like um, I've heard people on like conservative talk radio hosts to uh, local community activists all say uh you know 
oh, wow, this is a really terrible thing that happened. And, like, this was a bad decision to make. But there are still people in the city government that are defending the, the route that our city took. And so what am I talking about? I'm talking about uh, our one of, now, one of our resident killer cops in, in Huntsville, Alabama. Apparently, the murder screen is broken at the Huntsville Police Department. I mean, my God. But last week, a city councilor defended their decision to pay for the defense of former Officer Darby, a murderer cop, in his defense trial. Now, um, for those that don't remember, and for, uh, and, and, and for those that aren't local, maybe, let's review really quickly what happened. In April of 2018, people called 911 to assist a suicidal man, Jeffrey Parker. Two HPD officers arrive on the scene, and they are doing uh, what should be done in these situations. That is, they got to the scene, and they, and they basically try to help this guy. They're talking to him. They're trying to de-escalate, not being threatening. They're just being like a normal person to this guy at the lowest point of his life. He has a flare gun to his head, and they... Uh, and, and obviously, they assess the situation. They're like, this is a suicidal guy. He's not trying to kill us. He's trying to kill himself. And what is our job as people who are supposed to protect our citizens, our job is to make him not kill himself. That's what we should be doing in this situation right now. We should be trying to de-escalate the situation and uh, make him pull his gun down and, and the goal is that everybody leaves healthy and safe and alive, and maybe we can get this guy some help afterwards. Then Officer Darby shows up, and 11 seconds, 11 seconds later, Jeffrey Parker is dead. He has been shot in the face by Darby's shotgun despite never having made any threatening movements, gestures, or sounds. He's killed dead on the spot 11 seconds after the murderer cop, Officer Darby, shows up. 11 seconds. Officer Darby is then charged with murder by the Republican the Republican Madison County District Commissioner or District Attorney, I'm sorry, Rob Brassard. Okay, so at this point, any reasonable person should be thinking, oh, hey, uh, you know, um, the Republican District Attorney is charging a cop with murder? Man, maybe I thought, maybe I should step back from my from my uh, instinctive, um, maybe I should step back from my instinctive need to defend cops, like to defer to authority, to the, to the violence of the state. Maybe I should step back for a second and say, oh man, maybe this is like a unique situation. Yeah, I, I think I have to really just jump in and emphasize that the district attorney, Rob Broussard, he is not just a Republican. He is a very pro-law enforcement, pro-police Republican. 
This is someone that, you know, activists have had issues with in the past when it comes mm-hmm. to other issues, incidents right. of police violence. Has he ever even once prosecuted a police brutality case? I mean, I don't know, but I it would I, surprise me. This is the me. only one that I, that comes to my mind and I, like I said, I know in previous incidents, uh, you know, he was he was by no means um seeking transparency uh, or right, you know, he's right. not one of these you know reformer district attorneys that we've right. heard about you know like in philadelphia this that's not this guy yeah um, so so like so you know if you're even like if you're like a, a conservative politician who like oh, i back the blue i i love the violence that the state inflicts on its citizens most of the time like that's totally great or if you're even like a liberal back the bluer and and you're like uh maybe there are some bad apples but like broadly speaking cops are good like maybe at this point we've got a republican district attorney who's very pro-law enforcement like just take a damn step back and like assess the situation so the police chief says that he's reviewed the body camera footage and he says that the officer is innocent. The police chief and the city council then votes to use taxpayer dollars to give an extravagant defense for the killer cop, ultimately about $150,000, not having seen the footage, not having seen any evidence, they're deferring to the judgment of the chief of police. Okay. Darby is ultimately found guilty of murder. The body camera footage is released and at least one city council member has expressed regret for the expenditure of those funds, but not Francis Acreage. She still defends her decision and even said this is just fascinating. I mean, fascinating. Maybe at the time you could defend the like. Like, oh, the police chief, he should know what's going on. Maybe I'm going to trust the police chief more than this, uh, you know, super right-wing district attorney. Maybe at the time you can say that. But she says that knowing what she knows now, knowing what she knows now, she would have made the same decision. So let's listen to her defense at a recent city council meeting. Adam, go ahead and play the clip. I want to, I want to address... The Darby defense. If it were to happen again, God forbid, and the police chief who, in his estimation, thought that the officer followed their training and the mayor also thought that, it is not up to this council to review body camera. It is not because all of these things do have a direct correlation to Supreme Court decisions. Okay, pause it there. Don't change the scene. Just pause it there because I want to. I want to interject really quick. Um, she, she's saying that she's she's trying to defend her decision by deferring to the defend her decision of deferring to the police chief with Supreme Court decisions. The Supreme Court. I I emailed her yesterday. I asked her about the Supreme Court decisions that she was referencing. She referenced Graham v. Connor, which is about how you find a cop guilty or not, basically. Not, not about whether or not city councils should defer to police chiefs when they ask for $100,000 for a super special defense for their super special boy. 
That's not what Graham v. Connor is about. It's about how you determine guilt, not whether police officers deserve an extra special defense that normal citizens do not get. Let's continue with the clip. And the justice system has to go through. I would vote again today if any employee, even a trash truck driver, was accused of a crime and it was recommended that we spend 50 cents a head on tax from each taxpayer to get the best defense possible. I would do it again today because that's what we do for employees. Any organization has to stand by their employees. All right. And there we go. That's and that's and that's the relevance. That's why it, it, it came to my attention, because what she's doing here is she's trying to defend the decision to give a super special defense for a super special boy as some sort of uh, as as some sort of of um, as a pro worker stance as a pro worker stance. And let's remember really quick. That the police chief and the mayor are still saying that he followed the policy. They're still saying he followed the policy. And they still believe this case was wrongly decided. McMurray and Battle are out there literally today defending a convicted murderer, defending his murder. And she would still defer to their judgment. Yeah, now, and I, I wanted to interject here because, uh, you know, someone brought this up in the YouTube chat and it's it's a fair question about, you know, what does this have to do with the subject matter of this show? This is a union show. We talk about labor issues, working class issues. Um, and, and I'll just say my opinion and you're welcome to, you know, interject however you want to, Jacob. But in my opinion, you know, for one thing, there's the hypocrisy of this uh, statement to couch this in the pro-worker language, as you mentioned. Uh, there's the disparity between the way Darby has been treated by city government versus how, you know, any other worker would. Uh, right. You know, and I know she, she I think, responded to some criticism there, but at a point to bring up, uh, you know, someone who drives a garbage truck. Yeah, exactly. And so, but, so the you know that's 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 a very different scenario. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you asked me uh, off air about teachers. Yeah, you know, if a if a public school teacher in Huntsville, Alabama, were to be accused of sexual assault, does the Huntsville City Schools or the City of Huntsville or State of Alabama pay for their criminal defense? And the answer is no. Um, right. So, you know, it's this isn't like, hey, we have a basic liability protection for our employees when they are um, indicted for their duties on the job. This was, as you mentioned, above and beyond any sort of, you know, ordinary protocol. Uh, So I think that is one of the reasons why it's a relevant Mm -hmm. topic. Um, You know, I think think it's relevant that we know what's happening in our community. Anyway, we are based here in North Alabama. Right, right. Um, And and the final thing I'll just say on that, I'll get off my soapbox, is that we know that police violence disproportionately impacts working class people. Right. Um, Yeah. Bosses aren't going to be, you know, murdered. Right. (laughs) You know, Jeff Bezos is not concerned about police violence. Right. right. Uh, But our brothers and sisters who work in Amazon warehouses 
uh, and work for these corporations, they do have to be concerned about it, particularly right. uh, people who are racial minorities, people who are LGBT. We, I mean, those aren't just things that uh, are, are made up. That's that's statistical right, evidence. Right. There is a clear disproportionality in the way uh, the police treat people in this country and mm-hmm. here in this community. Uh, Huntsville, Alabama, for example, I believe it's what, about... Uh, 10 times, 12 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana if you're black versus white in the city limits of Huntsville. Yeah. I mean, these are very stark disparities, and and it does all tie together because it's ways in which working class people are are divided and ways Mm -hmm. in which we are, you know, subjected to violence by the state, you know, in the same state, which will turn around and, and defend those inflicting the violence as opposed to. Uh, defending and supporting the workers in a community who actually grow the community uh, upon whose labor the community rests. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the things that the first thing that a union will bargain for, one of the first things in, an, in a new contract or the, one of the first things that they'll make sure gets made better or or is re-upped in, an, in a, a new contract negotiation is just cause disciplinary procedures. Okay? Absolutely. And, and we talk about that, and one of the things that we liken it to is, um, is, is due process in our judicial system. And I think that's very important. And I would never, never uh, advocate that anybody, no matter how heinous their crime, crime not get a competent defense. Correct. Everybody has a right to an attorney, and I believe... Which I don't, which, which Francis makes you think that she does. She makes you think that everybody, that she believes every employee should have a right to due process. But, and I don't know if like she's just not aware of the reality that working people face, but, um, most working people do not get due process on the job. Most working people, if you don't have a union contract, you are totally at the whim of your boss. And so am I saying that there should should not have been due process for the killer cop when he murdered somebody for his job? No, there should have been. And am I saying that there should be no due process for the killer cop when he murdered somebody as far as him going to jail or not? No, there should have been. And if Francis or anybody else has an issue with the level of defense that killer cops receive then the solution is not to pay for out of taxpayer dollars a super special defense for a super special boy the solution is to better fund our public defense so that everybody has a competent defense because cops aren't special Cops are not a higher class of people cops are not better than me Cops are not better than you, and they don't deserve better than you or me. So if the city council believes that the defense offered to normal working people, and this is why it's relevant to us as a, as a, as a show that advocates for the rights of working people through their collective action, if the city council believes that the defense that would be offered to normal working people like a, a garbage truck driver or an Uber driver is not adequate, then address that on a systemic level. Don't make a special, don't make a special, uh, uh, 
exception for a killer cop. You know, like, let's start talking about maybe people should get due process for, like, robbery or assault or, or uh, you know, smoking weed. Maybe we should start talking about those people getting a competent defense before we start talking about people who <laughs> murder somebody after they got there 11, 11 seconds after they got after they got somewhere i mean it's just it's so it's insane that you would still defer to the judgment of the police chief who believes to this day that the person followed protocol and like i frankly i don't care if they followed protocol if they followed protocol and that was protocol then the protocol is obviously against the law because it resulted in murder and they should change the protocol right the answer is not that oh he should get off scot-free because he changed the protocol it means that the whole huntsville police department is operating under a protocol that that necessitates murder and that's a problem Okay, I, I mean, and and we have and and cops and office and and military officers have a duty to disobey unlawful orders. So if the protocol does encourage murder, then the thing to do and the thing to encourage officers to do is to violate protocol. And it's just it's so frustrating to me that wrapping this up in pro-worker language because Jeffrey Parker was a worker. Jeffrey Parker was a worker. These people who who who. I mean, good. I mean, good grief. Working people every day in this country, every day in this country, face ramifications on their job and in the criminal justice system with uh, much, much, much less due process than Parker got or than Darby got, the killer cop, and 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 so. To, yeah, because Mr. Parker received no due process. Right, right. I mean, I, just, th- I think that needs to be very clear, uh, as with so many others who have been victimized by police yeah. violence. That is the absence of due process. Right. right. Uh, when, when an officer can be judge, jury, and executioner within 11 seconds. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, not to hammer this home too much, but it, it is pretty obscene to think that you know, our city government and the police chief have remained in their positions right. and have the nerve to tell us, we the people, that not only was the district attorney of their own ideology <laughs> incorrect, uh, but the justice system itself right. was wrong, that the right. jury of his peers was wrong. Right. Um it's it's yeah it's it's very bizarre honestly mm-hmm. I you know yeah, I mean, I, I'm with I you I'm kind of surprised that um, they didn't just like cut their losses at some point and Seriously. say you know what maybe this is the bad mm-hmm. apple yeah uh, because you know that's <laughs> I mean, that's always the defense is they always oh, a just, bad apple right okay. but they defend every single bad apple right at, at some point you can't really use that defense right. if you're gonna go ham on on fighting for the bad apples yeah yeah um, yeah I mean and so and and like. We would not advocate that uh, teachers who rape children get super special defenses in criminal court. Right. That doesn't happen. They should be entitled to the same amount of right. due process and defense as anyone else. Yeah. And if they did, in fact, commit those crimes and they are convicted on those crimes, well, then they you should know be what? punished. They for are it. an embarrassment to the profession. Exactly. And they are ashamed to the profession. And, yeah. and any uh, educator worth their salt would feel the same way. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you know, and so that should be the response right. from the HPD chief McMurray and from Mayor Tommy Battle. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, that and, should be their response right. of, you know what, uh, the jury has spoken. Justice right. is has laid out uh, what has happened here, and we're ashamed, and we're sorry, and we're going to do everything right. in our power to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. Yeah. How and, hard and, is and, it to even say this, seriously. knowing that you probably don't believe it and probably won't even do anything about it? But serious. So that that does take it to another level, and I think that's why it's fascinating. Um, even when compared to these types of incidents in other cities and, and other states, because obviously right. this is a this is a yeah, national and, problem. Uh, but Huntsville- yeah, and in in another clip, she said something about like it's not the executive function to determine guilt, and all I'm doing is following somebody. And so like so like okay, look, if you are principally opposed to as the person who controls the purse strings, uh, if you're principally opposed to looking at the evidence, then fine, like get somebody else to maybe maybe get the uh, the. The HPCAC, the Huntsville Police Citizens Advisory Council, to review the evidence and make a recommendation to you if you don't want to for some reason. But like you to defend still deferring to the police chief who we know has I mean it's just it's absurd and and Chad Chavez in in our YouTube chat uh, which you can join if you find us on YouTube the Valley Labor Report you can get in there and you can chat with us Chad Chavez says he also didn't like the way the acreage said even a truck driver as though their labor was worthless which of course that's even you know I mean just classist and 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 insane and and it's crazy. So, yeah, and for those of you who uh, somehow missed this, especially those of you who are not local, uh, go back and check out the episode where we actually interviewed Chad, um, who is one of the community activists here in Huntsville, has been trying to hold the system accountable. Uh, we had yeah. a great interview there. Uh, me and David talked with him, uh, and, we, and we offered quite a bit of coverage uh, around those events. But uh, check that out if, if you're <clears throat> curious, if you want to kind of go deeper with it. Uh, but, yeah, it, it is a shame that we're still talking about it. It's certainly a shame to try to um, you really shroud yeah. the actions of city of Huntsville leadership in yeah, some sort of pro-worker language around yeah, this. There are plenty of ways that they can demonstrate they are pro-worker. Right. This has nothing to do with it. But hey, if that if that's their new uh, change of heart, if now moving yeah. forward suddenly every single there's a, worker uh, pro worker <laughs> sentiment on the Huntsville City Council, then uh, yeah. hey, just just prove it to us. Yeah, prove it, it to us. Like I I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll make a um we'll we'll talk about Francis Acreage in a much more positive light yeah. if she um, let's say pushes forward an ordinance in Huntsville City that eradicates at will employment for everybody. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, like I look that forward would to be, seeing yeah. all city employees uh, have collective bargaining agreements. Right, right, uh, right. moving forward. And, 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 I, and yeah, and I look forward to her eliminating at will employment in within the city limits of Huntsville because that's something that can be done. Right, yeah. New York City, New York City did that. They eliminated at will employment for fast food employees. So if she really thinks that everybody is entitled to due process, then then effing prove it. Prove that you that you think that people like the lowly garbage truck driver in your mind or or the lowly burger flipper. Like if you think they deserve due process, then effing prove it. <laughs> The next thing that we're going to talk about is a is like a progressive, quote unquote, who 
has I don't know he's been like really weird but he went on attack on the attack against the teachers unions which is very progressive so this is always I, I'm just I before we it. even get into this I just got to say that it's always very illuminating uh, when people who claim to be progressive or uh, you know pro labor start to issue their hot takes about unions yeah it's great uh, so. because a lot of times you can expose <laughs> yeah. how they really feel yeah so let's go to a break really quick and we will be right back defending chicago teachers you're listening to the valley labor report with adam keller and jacob morrison Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. Work sucks, we know, but you can make it better by organizing with your fellow workers. For more information, call or text the Huntsville Industrial Workers of the World at 256-651-6707. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855 617 9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855 617 9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. 
With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. The Valley Labor Report. Welcome back. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Last week, we spoke to, we spoke to Kenzo Shibata. He's a high school teacher, a member of the executive board of the Chicago Teachers Union, a delegate in the Chicago Teachers Union House of Delegates. And we went a little bit longer, so if you just listened to us on the radio, um, we actually went a little bit over, went into what we call overtime online, and you can see our full conversation with him um, on our YouTube channel or in our podcast. And uh, we love teachers, we love unions, and um, and so when this came across my my Twitter feed, um, it kind of, it, 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 it was incredibly frustrating to me. Um, and so the folks that, folks that listen to us online, you're going to know who this guy is. Folks that listen to us on the radio, you're not going to know who this guy is, but it's okay because he says a lot of things that a lot of people say. So we can, you know, even though you don't know who it is, we'll be able to attack, we'll, we'll be able to, to attack the ideas and you'll get, you'll get the gist. Okay. So Jimmy Dore is an internet politics guy. And, uh, uh, so, uh, let's just, let's just jump right into it. I don't think that Adam has heard it. So, so we'll be able to kind of get his live takes. Uh, let's go ahead and play that clip really quick. Sure. And as I'm queuing that up, I do want to mention, I uh, greatly apologize, Jacob. I think you were muted for the first few seconds back. Uh, so as always, technical problems can be blamed on me, Adam. Uh, complaints <laughs> about such technical problems can be forwarded to you, Jacob. Uh, <laughs> right, so course, anyone who has complaints, share them with Jacob. He'd love to hear them. I do. Uh, but it is my fault. I will gladly take the blame for that. So uh, without further ado, let's listen to this moron, uh, Jimmy Dore. There's a big debate about whether they should open the schools uh, because of COVID and because Omicron is so much more contagious. Uh, Omicron, the symptoms of Omicron are very mild and they're like uh, they're like a cold. Um, And a lot of people are saying that's good because that signals the end of the pandemic, because now we're going to become endemic and now it will just circulate. And the symptoms that it will present with are those of a cold, even though it's not. It's the Omicron cold. Okay, let's pause it right there. Don't change the scene. I'm just going to address this really quick. Um, He says that 
he calls it an Omicron cold, and he mentions that people are getting happy about this um, because it's more mild. It might send a signal the end of the pandemic. Might be become it might become endemic, and that's that's true enough. Right. And we spoke to uh, Dr. Mark Elaine Derry about uh, about the coronavirus, about the pandemic a couple of weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago. It was it was like New Year's or something when we spoke to him. You can hear our conversation there, full conversation uh, with him on YouTube, our podcast as well. And he said he said a similar thing. Yes, the Omicron variant is more mild and hopefully crossing our fingers here. Uh, this will signal a trend in the coronavirus to become more and more mild. Because generally speaking, when we have a virus or when we have a cold, he says, the um, it will become more and more mild because the goal of an organism is to live, right? And so if you're if you're too virulent, if you're too deadly, you're going to kill your host. You're not going to be able to spread as much. You're not going to be able to live as long. You're not going to be able to replicate. Um, and so, like, it's generally the path is that uh, that that it becomes more mild. Um, and so, uh, but we haven't seen that so far with the coronavirus. We've actually seen with each variant, it has become more and more transmissible and more and more virulent, more and more deadly, which is scary. (laughs) It's very scary. But Omicron is the first variant that has become more transmissible. Yes, but less virulent, less deadly. So the hope is. It's, and it's just a hope at this point, a hope based in like what usually happens, but uh, it's a hope that it will become, continue to become less virulent and, and that it will signal an end to the pandemic. It will send signal that this will become endemic and it will, uh, it will cycle, cycle through the population like the 1918 Spanish flu, because anytime you get a flu, you actually still get a variant of the Spanish flu because it got less and less virulent, less and less deadly. Okay. Um, But we're not there yet. (laughs) Yeah. There's some, there's some promising signs out of Africa and other places where Omicron, you know, hit first and that's good. Uh, Right. But there's there's still a lot up in the air and there's still, of course, the, yeah, the risk it's not that there's a, more variants yeah, that are it's, worse. It's not a cold yet, okay? Like, maybe, hopefully it will, but the Omicron variant is not a cold, okay? So let's talk about the cold. Let's talk about the flu. The record flu season in the last 10 years, and I only know 10 years because I just checked 10 years. I thought 10 years was a good time to check, okay? I don't know. Like, whatever. But the last 10 years, the record flu season was 2017 to 2018. There were 61,000 deaths over 19 weeks. That averages to a daily death count of 460-ish. Where are we right now? Yesterday, the seven-day average was 1,912 people dying per day. That's the seven-day average. from the for, for the entirety of the pandemic, that's four times more than... than the record flu season of the last 10 years. And in fact, over the entirety of the pandemic, from April 2020 until now, there have only been eight weeks, eight weeks, where the daily death count was less than the record flu season from the last decade. That means every week for the last year and a half, we have had more people dying per day 
than during uh, <laughs> than the death rate from the most deadly flu in the last 10 years. Um, and that flu season was only 19 weeks, which was a long flu season. We're talking about 80 weeks where we're seeing death rates exceed that. Okay, so look, Omicron, potentially good signal. Is it the flu yet? Is it the cold yet? No. And it, there's the long-term yeah. health effects, and a couple people in the chat have brought that up, and I'm glad right. they did, because that that's that's also a distinction there. Not always comparing it to the flu, uh, you know, a pretty flimsy comparison, but the long-term effects, of which we aren't entirely sure about right, right. now, you know, yeah. that's, that's also a, a major difference there. Yeah, so let's continue. So everybody f***ing their pants about kids having to go to school are just repeating propaganda some big pharma funded establishment news congratulations do you know the damage that is done to kids not being socialized in schools all right that's that that's basically all that i wanted to listen to because here he's talking about they're fear-mongered by the establishment. Like, who is he talking about? The establishment. The establishment is not on the side of teachers. <laughs> the establishment is not on the side of the Chicago Teachers Union. I mean, he's taking, like, he's taking the side of such anti-establishment figures as uh, Joe Biden, uh, Jen Psaki, Lori Lightfoot, Ben Shapiro. Yeah, this is a, this is a really rowdy progressive crowd that we've got anti-establishment crowd these people hate the establishment these people hate capitalism these people hate the status quo they love it when people upend it and yeah totally that's the crowd that he's hanging out with now you know and 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 this is all brought about all these people morning joe uh you know cnn msnbc fox news they're all attacking the teachers right now the chicago teachers union the ire of the entire United States is being put on the Chicago Teachers Union. And for what exactly? Let's review. Again, we spoke to Kenzo Shibata about this. You can go and, and, and hear the full conversation if you'd like. Let's review what is actually happening in the real world across the United States and in Chicago. The Chicago Teachers Union democratically voted, this was not a top-down dictate from the leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union, this was a democratic vote by the rank-and-file teachers to opt to go remote during the largest caseload of the coronavirus that we've seen to date. We are either approaching record hospitalizations or we're near or, or we've already passed record hospitalizations. They opted to go remote for the first time this year, I think, for the first time the whole school year, until some new safety measures were put in place. That's not crazy. And what were the safety measures? Maybe you think, oh, well, uh, I bet the safety measure was something like, uh, like building new school buildings. No. Here were, the sa- here were the safety measures they wanted. They wanted enforceable metrics to shift school to remote. Okay, we've invested uh, with the American Rescue Plan. We have invested uh, uh, funds to allow schools to go remote temporarily. We should make use of those, especially while we are still hopefully coming to the end of the pandemic, but we're still in the pandemic. 
we can shift to remote when we have surges like this for a couple of weeks. We should have enforceable metrics to shift school to remote. Okay? Doesn't lay out what the metric should be. Just says we need enforceable metrics. That sounds reasonable. Real contract tracing, contact tracing, that sounds reasonable. We should be told when we've been exposed. Okay? That, that's not, that's not going to take a whole lot of money. And better vaccine access. Well, vaccines are free, so we just have to set the vaccines up and allow and say that schools should be vaccine sites. We should have vaccination on school grounds. That's not, it's not crazy. High quality masks for both students and staff. Here's the crazy thing. Chicago Public Schools was rejecting help from the state that was meant to keep their children safe, rejecting funding from the state to purchase masks. To purchase N95 and KN95 masks. So just stop, <laughs> just accept money, okay? That doesn't, that's not, that's not crazy. Accept money. Like, let people give you money, okay? That doesn't seem difficult. And have uh, either temporary remote learning or proper testing. And here, it's important to know that the mayor's daughter in her fancy-ass uh, uh, private school <laughs> was remote learning during this whole time because of the coronavirus wave and implement a proper testing regime. That's like, this is not, this is not crazy stuff. That's what they asked for. And, and they were able to come to an agreement with Chicago Public Schools and they're back in person now. Okay, so they... They did, and they opted to, and here's the crazy thing, they opted to go to remote learning, and what did the Chicago Public Schools do? They just canceled school. Like, all these people attacking the teachers for saying, we want to teach safely for a moment while we get our bearings after the holiday. We want to take some time to get our bearings, teach remotely for a couple of weeks, or maybe for a week, or maybe for a few days, while we implement some new safety measures, and... um. And everybody's attacking the teachers. Nobody is attacking the public school system, which just canceled school, but as just pitching a fit. I mean, even if you want to say that the teachers were totally in the wrong to do this, I don't think they were. I think it's a reasonable thing that they asked for, and it's a reasonable thing that they did. But even if you say that, Chicago Public Schools was doubly in the wrong, because if you're actually concerned about teachers educating students, if you're actually concerned about students getting that education, you'd want them to get some form of education rather than nothing, rather than nothing. That's what they got. Right. The, during the that school week. system locked out the teachers from their virtual learning courses and platforms right. uh, because the mayor and what they called their school CEO, uh, which is, uh, you know, essentially their superintendent. But I think the name says it all, really. Yeah. Uh, the CEO and the mayor decided, well, this is an illegal strike you guys are doing. This is an illegal work action, which, right. uh, you know, we'll see what side the law comes on on that. But that's really irrelevant to the matter uh, because they were all pissy about it. They decided, right. well, we'll show you. Yeah. You want to do remote learning? Well, we'll just uh, yeah. shut it off. So where you can't, you physically cannot get in yeah. on your computer to deliver remote instruction. Yeah, we care now, so how is much. That good for right. the kids. We care so much about our students learning that uh, we're just going to not allow them to learn at all for a week. 
Yeah, that's totally, totally, you care so much about their education. Give me a break. I mean, give me a break. And this is a guy who's supposed to be, like I said, he, he like, he, 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 he postures as like, oh, I'm the real progressive. I'm the real progressive. I'm the guy. I'm the guy who's actually for progressive values. I'm the guy who's actually for workers. And here he's going out of his way to deflect blame from the boss. I mean, why were these things not implemented already? Is one I mean, they've been this these are things that the Chicago Teachers Union has been asking for basically since the since the pandemic began. If the if Chicago public schools didn't want to have to go through this ad hoc stuff, they could have just said um they could have just said we're going to do this at the beginning so that so that we don't you don't have a reason to take these ad hoc work actions. Everybody knows what's going to happen. But they didn't. He's going out of his way to deflect blame from the boss, from politicians. Who's the politician here? It's Lori Lightfoot. It's not the teachers going out of his way to deflect blame from politicians, from the government, from the establishment onto rank and file working people onto rank and file working people and saying that he's anti-establishment and saying that he's progressive and that he's pro-worker give me a break give me a break but like i said earlier i mean that's what you see a lot of times uh in the kind of liberal commentary sphere Um, when push comes to shove you know, and, and union issues are actually on the table and in the popular consciousness, often you get to see their real values. Uh, and, and those who crap on teachers and, and teachers' unions, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's really an indication of where their values lie. Uh, as the old song goes, whose side are you on? Yeah. Yeah, you can't be pro-union if you're anti-teachers' union. Um, so... Uh, let's go ahead. We're going to do one more segment before we talk to Carol. Um, Carol uh, Gunlight is going to be our guest today. She's from Alabama Arise. We're going to be talking about the American Rescue Plan um, and the expenditure of those funds in the state, which my first question to her is going to be like, what do you mean the American Rescue Plan? Wasn't that like a year ago? We haven't decided what's going to happen with those, and apparently we haven't, so we're going to talk about that. Um, but first... <clears throat> Let's go to Last Week in Southern Labor. Last Week in Southern Labor is a segment where every week we talk about what happened in the last week in the labor movement in the south of the United States. We pull uh, we pull this information from whogetsthebird.substack.com with the permission of the author, Jonah Furman. He is a staff writer and reporter and organizer at Labor Notes, which is very good. Um, And he does a newsletter every week where he compiles what happened in the last week in the U.S. labor movement all across the United States. We pull what happened in the South. If you want to see what happened in the rest of of the United States, which there's a lot, there's a lot that happens. And there's a lot that happens every week that we don't we don't talk about uh, because we want you to go and and subscribe to the newsletter. It's very good. Um, uh, But we just talk about what happened in the South. So um go subscribe to the newsletter it's really good i recommend it let's go ahead and talk about what happened last week in southern labor uh first in organizing we had 38 drivers for rider logistics in southwest ranches florida they are organizing with teamsters local 769 
the uh, there are seven more workers at the Atlanta Gaslight Company. They're organizing with the IBEW, which is another small group of workers organized at the utility this summer. Ten mechanics and technicians for WAI construction in Huntsville, Alabama, voted eight to one to join the Operating Engineers Local 320. I'm going to have to send a congratulation to those folks over there. Um, it is the first non-security guard NLRB win in Alabama since 2019. Wow. See, we had some good news today. We had some good news today. 150 armed and unarmed transportation officers for MVM in McAllen, Texas, are unionizing with SPFPA. The staff of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, unionized with SEIEU Local 500 by 67% in a card check election. Very cool. Uh, The Alphabet Workers Union, CWA, has apparently filed its first NLRB representation petition which is very cool. It's not on the site yet, but uh, the NLRB lags a few days. For 11 employees at a Google Fiber retail store in Kansas City, Missouri. So far, the wall-to-wall union, uh, the wall-to-wall Google union, has focused on organizing tools outside of the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board process, but this could mark a shift in strategy or just a variety of tactics being used, which... I'm an advocate for. Uh, A new Amazon election date was set, but the union is signaling concerns. In a statement, they said, quote, We are deeply concerned that the decision fails to adequately prevent Amazon from continuing its objectionable behavior in a new election. We proposed to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, a number of remedies that could have made the process fairer to workers, which were not taken up in the notice of election issued today. Workers' voices can and must be heard fairly, unencumbered by Amazon's limitless power to control what must be a fair and free election, and we will continue to hold them accountable for their actions. So that is concerning, but uh, there is... And, and and in the broader to, to kind of broad more broadly contextualize um, the uh, uh, the win rate for rerun elections is only forty percent compared to sixty seven percent for first elections for first union elections um, and the win rate decreases as you get a larger and larger bargaining unit. And the and the bargaining unit at the Amazon facility in Bessemer is something like five, six thousand. So um the it's odds, an uphill battle. It's an uphill uh, battle. Is what you're yeah, saying. And yeah, I wanted to make sure we we clearly stated this was uh the Bessemer, Alabama right, right, Amazon right. warehouse and mm-hmm. the union here is RWDSU. The that, retail wholesale department store union. Right. So I want to make sure everybody was uh following us on that. Yep. And uh but there is some cause for hope. I talked to the lead organizer um of the campaign and he said that the um the support that they've seen from the labor movement has been fantastic. And in fact, my union, which this was news to me, and, and, and it was it was so cool to hear that. We talked to Reverend Everett Kelly, the president, the national president of the American Federation of Government Employees last week, and he mentioned something about um, 
supporting the campaign. And so I talked to the organizer, the lead the lead organizer on the campaign about that, and he said that AFGE had sent it or is sending for one month six staffers to support the campaign, which is like that's so cool. You're going to get six staffers, uh, six organizers from AFGE to support this RWDSU campaign. Um, the Teamsters are doing similar things. Uh, SEIU is doing similar things. The UAW is doing similar things. This is just fantastic. Um, but like SEIU or, or like the Teamsters, you know, you could say that, oh, they've got like a vested interest there because, uh, you know, they're going to want to organize the Amazon drivers, of course. Um, and that's true. But AFGE has no like direct interest in Amazon workers organizing um, because we're we're a federal employee union. We represent federal employees. It doesn't help us directly, of course. Directly, of course, it helps us indirectly. Is the, is the point? But it doesn't directly help us if Amazon workers unionize. But as part of the labor movement, as working people, an injury to one is an injury to all, and a victory for one is a victory for all. And so um, I'm so proud, so so proud of my union for this. Uh, uh, this r- real and genuine material support for the campaign, and I'm so proud of other unions in the labor movement doing that. And uh, it's it's exciting. It's an uphill battle, but um, but but hopefully they'll be able yeah, to find it. Yeah, absolutely. And this display of solidarity—that's what it's all about. And you know, on this show, uh, we are obviously pro-union, but we at times, you know, we we offer our critiques of the unions as institutions. Uh, but this right here, this is this is why you pay your dues to your national and international. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, you know, you can start to wonder, like, you know, where does this money go? Why can't the local, well, you know, keep all this? Well, mm-hmm. uh, this is a good demonstration of why your dues dollars can be important, because it can allow your national and international uh, unions to do shared staffing, to send in right. resources and staffers and support uh, to other campaigns. And so next time, you know, next year, next campaign, when it's you on the line, you mm-hmm. and your brothers and sisters, hopefully they can return the favor. So that's yeah. what it's all about. And that is good news. In strikes and bargaining, the UMWA strikers at Warrior Met in Brookwood, Alabama, have enjoyed no breakthrough, unfortunately. Kim Kelly wrote for The Nation about why the miners won't quit after 10 months out of work. We are now past 288 days on strike, the longest strike in Alabama history. The longest strike in Alabama history. The special medals strike by 440 members of the Steelworkers Local 40 in Huntington, West Virginia, just passed its 100th day, with the company now planning to permanently eliminate 75 jobs. That's crazy. I did see uh, where Senator Bernie Sanders has uh, come out in support of those mm-hmm. steel workers and has been trying to raise money for them, I believe, in their strike yeah. fund. Uh, and he talked to them in a live stream with uh, workers from the BCTGM John Denaire strike in Los Angeles and miners from the UMWA yes, in Alabama. Yes, I saw some familiar faces, some of our mm-hmm. uh, friends of the mm-hmm. show uh, interviewed there, and I uh, just saw a little headline that Senator Sanders, along with Elizabeth Warren and Tammy Baldwin, have come out uh, to put more pressure on the investors that own Warrior Met Coal uh, to... Yeah settle this strike and resolve it in favor of the workers. And uh, while I think you and I are on the same page, we 
are not that big a fan of electoral politics and, and probably don't follow it as closely as we used to. That's what <laughs> right. you want to see out of an elected official. If you want to be pro-worker, uh, <laughs> to uh, tie it back to our city councilor from earlier, that's right. the way you can be pro-worker. Yeah, Raise yeah. money for strike funds. Uh, use your influence and, and position to pressure these uh, just hedge fund vampires in Wall Street uh, to right. settle these strikes. The steelworkers have tabled a new proposal to Exxon to end the eight-month lockout in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, The proposal also covers workers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who are not locked out, but the company rejected it. Meanwhile, ballots on a decertification vote are still impounded, um, and there is concern that the company doesn't, uh, that, that they may just want to wait and see how that goes how the decertification vote among the scabs goes before entertaining any deals. Very important context here is that the Steelworkers Pattern Agreement covering 30,000 workers at 20 refineries across 12 employers expires on February the 1st. Marathon is the lead negotiating target, but obviously what happens there will affect Exxon as part of the pattern. Educators in Orange County, Florida, are at an impasse with the district overpay as teachers leave the profession in droves despite, I mean, despite people saying that this has been two years of a paid vacation. I mean, give me a, give me an effing break. Um, despite teachers leaving in droves while COVID rages in a state with one of the lowest average teacher salaries in the country the lowest average salaries for teachers in the country. The district is offering a $3,500 to $6,500 supplement, mostly in one-time bonuses, and the union says it isn't enough, which is obvious, and which likely, objectively, isn't going to address staffing issues, let alone fairness issues. Obviously. The president of the ATU Local 1395, representing transit workers in Escambia County, Florida, Escambia, has his transit job back after an arbitrator ruled his April 2020 firing two years ago. He was fired two years ago. An arbitrator ruled that it was unjustified. The reason he was fired is that he let a camera crew onto company property to highlight the COVID safety issues in the early days of the pandemic. An arbitrator ruled that firing was unjustified. The headline is that the process works, quote unquote, but that is gobsmacking. Two years out of a job for an unjust firing only to be reinstated by an independent arbitrator does not sound like a good process or a process working, but it's still more of a process to tie it back again. It's still more of a process than any worker without a union contract has. No No non-union worker will have an arbitrator rule in their favor on an unjust firing because no non-union worker is going to have the opportunity to take his case to an arbitrator. American Airlines and the Allied Pilots Association are seeking to bargain a new contract in a super compressed lightning round of negotiations meeting five days a week for four weeks starting on January 17th. Uh, While remote work for teachers gets all the attention, AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees, has filed a complaint against the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission 
not with but against the EEOC as the EEOC is the employer for refusing to bargain over telework provisions. This has been a rolling fight across several federal employers. And fortunately for us here in Huntsville, our commanders um, have been extremely um, reasonable in negotiations about telework uh, because um, they're not being needlessly obstinate <laughs> because they saw that we were able to work at home. And so, uh, largely speaking, federal employees, if you're able to do your job at home in Huntsville, you have been given that option, which is that's, good. That's definitely good news. And yeah. it just seems like some common sense. Uh, yeah, right, and right. It is and some of, people... It's I mean, interesting that uh, uh, the EEOC, which is, you know, especially those of you who don't have unions, that would be, you know, your main federal agency you might could go to to... Uh, bring forth a complaint or try to uh, address discrimination. And yet here they are, you know, the subject of their own union complaint because of the way they are treating their own employees. If anyone ought to know better, it ought to be them. But, you know, that's a common theme on the show with both agencies and institutions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, legislation in Florida seeks to end dues deduction, where the employer automatically deducts union dues from your paycheck and sends it to the union as agreed to in the union contract uh, for most public employees. But notably, <laughs> of course, not cops, firefighters, or prison workers, because uh, cops are super special. Way boys. to just make it obvious yeah. that it is a very ideological yeah, uh, thing. I've seen this. I've seen politicians talk before, like, "Oh, we shouldn't use the government." resources for this and it literally is just you know the yeah. union sends them a file uh right. they upload it right. they you know it it's a it's a very uh yeah you know i'm sure it I varies mean, it's by a, union and, it, and payroll process but it's not a very yeah. involved process it's, no, it's the not. employee's money that's being deducted so right um but yeah to, to and, carve out these exceptions makes it very obvious yeah, what yeah. they're trying to do yeah Cops are super special boys. We don't want you to get your feelings hurt. If you have a gun, we love you so much. You're very special. You get your dues deducted, but nobody else because you're special. The bill would also decertify public unions that fall below 50% membership among the represented unit, uh, which would, of course, be more likely in the event that unions have to independently collect dues for each would-be member. And, um, you know, again, this is just like an extra step to make it more difficult for workers to um, advocate for themselves. Absolutely. Because if you're in a private industry union, of course, that's one of the things you can negotiate is is dues deduction in your contract. Uh, But the state of Florida is trying to take that option away from many of their workers. But not cops, because they're special. We can't forget the special snowflakes. Um, Carol is on the line. All uh, right. So we can... Um, yeah, we've got one one more... Th- uh, oh, yeah, that was it. That was it. So Carol's on the line. Let's let Carol in the room and uh, love to hear some updates about the Alabama legislature. Good deal. Yeah, so Carol Gunlack, we're going to be talking over the next couple of weeks about the legislative session as it is now in session. It started on Tuesday. And uh, so for our first first interview about this, and maybe we'll bring her on after we get off the air we'll we'll keep going with her uh, if she has some time potentially but she's a policy analyst for alabama arise and she's our next guest so carol uh thank you so much for joining i appreciate it i'm glad to do it great great so first i want to ask uh the american rescue plan was passed some time ago 
nearing a year, um, and I guess my expectation was that maybe the funds had not been expended yet, but that they had been obligated already. As in, there have already been decisions made about where the money would be spent, but apparently that's not the case. Is that right? It is kind of the case. Um, The um, legislature um, last year, last session, appropriated some money from the American Rescue Plan. Um, uh, Initially, they appropriated um, $400 million to um, uh, build new prisons in the state. And of course, that's a very controversial decision. Um, A lot of people are not happy about it. Um, The leadership of the legislature and the governor felt it was needed. Uh, but that took up about 400 million of the one billion we had received so far from the federal government. Now there's another one billion coming in about um, six months. And then uh, the legislature also appropriated 80 million dollars um, to um, help out hospitals and nursing homes that were really struggling during um the um, during the COVID outbreak. So that was 480 million that has been spent out of a little bit over a billion. There's about 580 million left that we expect the legislature to appropriate sometime in the next uh, couple of weeks. Interesting. So why is it that why is it that that 500 some odd million was not appropriated before? I think it wasn't appropriated before because they were not in agreement about where it needed to go. We have several years to um, spend this money, and um, there was a real desire, I think, to spend it wisely and well in what was really going to be investments for the state, not to spend Mm -hmm. it in a hurry. Uh, The other thing is just last week, maybe the week before, the United States Department of the Treasury issued their final rules on what that money could be spent on. And, um, you know, there was already questions about whether or not we could spend it on prisons. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think they didn't want to obligate a billion dollars without being sure that it was um, being spent where where, um, the federal government would allow it to be spent. Yeah, well, so there. So you said that there there was just a ruling on the restrictions, and apparently the the restrictions don't include building prisons, so they must be pretty lax. What are the restrictions? Like, what are what are some of the broad overview of like what can the money be spent on and what can't it be spent on? It can be spent on anything that would consider to be infrastructure. Uh, some percentage of it can be spent to replace lost state revenue during the recession and the formula for determining whether or not state revenue has been lost is, um, I guess I would say it's a non-intuitive formula. Um, um, And that is where they were able to spend the money on prisons because that was less Mm. than the revenue that the state uh, lost under this formula. It cannot be spent on Medicaid uh, and it cannot be spent on retiring debt or on uh, replacing money that um, 
is um, given away in a tax cut. Interesting. So I did, so it cannot it cannot be used to expand Medicaid. It cannot. Uh, huh. we, we very much would have wanted it to be used that way. Now, well, Medicaid expansion is a whole nother issue, but we could argue right. that you could spend the money um, on other costs of state government, thereby freeing up money that could be mm. used to ex- expand Medicaid. Interesting. So tell, can, uh, have you been able to, as somebody who's following this issue, have you been able to get a sense of what some of the likely expenditures of the American Rescue Plan dollars are? As in, what are the what is the Republican majority looking most closely at using these dollars for? Yes, uh, we did get some um, kind of a preview um, late last week, yesterday or the day before. Um, We think that they are looking at broadband expansion, particularly in rural areas. We all know, and I I live in a very rural area, and so I'm extremely aware Mm -hmm. of the broadband needs in our rural counties. Um, So it can be spent for that. Um, They can spend it to replace revenue that has been lost through the unemployment compensation system to rebuild that trust fund. Now, we would probably argue that that is not the best expenditure of the money, but I believe that the legislature is going to do that. Um, They can, I think they're going to probably try to spend some more of it on helping rural hospitals, which have really been struggling and we've been losing rural hospitals. And so I think they are going to put some of it into health care. It can be spent on kind of mitigating the impact of COVID. Um, and I expect to see an appropriation to our Department of Public Health for that purpose. Um, that's a good thing to do because the Department mm. of Public Health has been chronically underfunded and they really need some more resources. Right, right. And that the public broadband or or or. Uh, investment in broadband, rural broadband sounds, um, that sounds really good to me. I live, I, it, it's crazy how bad the internet is in rural parts of the state. I live 40 minutes outside of the largest city in the state of Alabama. And, um, my, my internet is terrible. It's awful. Like, and I have the best, most premium package that you can get. Um, I pay more for terrible internet 35 minutes away from the city than I paid for uh, Google Fiber when I lived downtown. I mean, it's crazy. And so I can't imagine like actually living in one of the super, super rural areas, like on top of the mountains or like a skyline or, or, or something like that. Internet up there is just, it, I've been up there. It's even worse. I, you know, I can't imagine uh, having to deal with that in today's society. Um, the... Have you got some time after we go off off the radio to talk to us some more for another 15 minutes or so? Sure, of course. Okay. So we've got about four more minutes here on the radio then. And to so that you're able to hit this with our radio audience, uh, there's a push to end the grocery tax. Can you explain to us the grocery tax and like why it's unique that we have that? <laughs> 
Alabama is one of only four states in the nation that fully taxes groceries, which means that in most of the state, people are paying an additional 10 or 11 percent um, for their groceries uh, in taxes. And like I said, the vast majority of states do not tax groceries. Um, and we have been trying to end the grocery tax for years. There is a bill pending now at the legislature that um, Senator Andrew Jones has introduced that would eliminate the grocery tax. The catch has never been ending the grocery tax. It's been replacing the revenue. Because once mm. we in the grocery tax, we pull about four hundred million dollars, maybe closer to five hundred million now out of the education budget. And we don't want to do that. The legislature doesn't want to do that. Clearly, educators don't want to do that. So we have to replace that revenue. Um, Alabama Rice has had a proposal to replace the revenue in a way that would not hurt ordinary working people, but it would ask the rich to pay um, additional taxes in order to give everybody a, ta a break on their grocery taxes. That hasn't passed. Uh, Senator Jones has a bill that would do exactly that, and we're really, really hoping it passes this year. Have you been able to get a feel? What what is it specifically? You said that the you know it, the the tax is gonna uh, the burden is gonna fall on you know the wealthier people. What is the is it like a uh, you know in income tax on on the top whatever or is it a property tax or uh, what is it? It is effectively an income tax increase for the richest. Uh, Alabama is also one of very few states that allows people to deduct their federal income taxes from their income before they calculate their state income tax. It's called the federal income mm. tax deduction, or we call it the FIT. Um, and of course, because the federal income tax is progressive, the rich pay more in federal income taxes than do people who are you know, working for a living and don't have a lot of money. So they get mm. the benefit of the federal income tax deduction. Um, we have proposed getting rid of it, the fit completely, which would increase taxes on the very top 1%, really on people who are millionaires or close there too, um, mm -hmm. in order to take the sales tax off groceries. Senator Jones' bill would cap the uh, amount of money people can deduct uh, when they calculate their state income taxes to, I believe it's $4,000 per person. So it's kind of a compromise, um, mm -hmm. and we hope it'll be more palatable. Um, and has, what's been the reception to this idea among the Republican majority? Well, we don't know yet uh, because the bill was just introduced a couple of days ago, and as we know, they're mm -hmm. getting ready to go into a special session so we will see what the reaction uh, will be. We, we hope this is a moderate approach. We're uh, mm -hmm. running some numbers now to see how much it will cost and who it will cost. And um, so we should know more in a week or so. Gotcha.
All right. Uh, so, folks, if you're listening on the radio, you can continue listening online. We are online at the uh, the Valley Labor Report on YouTube and Facebook. We're going to continue talking to Carol Gunlock, policy analyst from Alabama Arise, about the grocery tax and American Rescue Plan fund expenditures and uh, what the likelihood is of these things passing. We're also going to be talking in the next couple of weeks about a new uh, bill that is going to limit the freedom of assembly and freedom to protest in Alabama. Going to continue talking about that and how that's going to affect striking workers like our brothers and sisters down in Brookwood on on strike against Warrior Met. So this has been the Valley Labor Report. We will see you next week. All right. So... Uh, everybody else is still with me. Thank you. Uh, thank you to everybody on YouTube and Facebook for hanging on the line. I appreciate your willingness. I, I just, I jumped this on Carol cause I, I wanted to talk some more. I jumped it on her. Like I, I didn't ask her if she, she'd have time. So I appreciate her willingness to stay on the line with us. So, um, so yeah, you you were saying that you're, you're not totally sure about the, about the reception among the Republican majority to the idea of, uh, of, this tax deduction being taken away have there been any other proposals um have there been any other proposals about ways to make up the difference oh my yes there have been over the years um almost all of which arise has not supported um (laughs) Uh, there was a proposal. That's very promising. <laughs> yeah, I know. There was a proposal a couple of years ago to basically increase the sales tax on everything else. So instead of paying uh, paying sales tax on groceries, you'd pay them on your kids' uh, tennis shoes. Uh, we didn't think that was reasonable. That was also going to be a burden on the people who could least afford to pay. Um, And we really felt that we don't need any more regressive taxes in the state. We need progressive taxes where ability to pay determines how much you do pay. Um, There have also been proposals to simply take the sales tax off groceries. And I should say all along, we're talking about the state portion of the sales tax, which is about 4% of cost. We are not talking the counties and the city's portion of the sales tax, simply because we can't bankrupt Mm. local government. Um, Because Alabama doesn't have home rule for localities, um, we don't want to shut down our county commissions or our city governments by taking away a tax revenue that they do have. Um, So we're talking about... Well, so, uh, but but would it even be in the... I thought that localities set their own locality sales tax. Do they... I mean, like... Would it even be something that the state legislature could do to take away that, the local sales tax? Yeah, they could do it. Um, And they could do it. Actually, Senator Jones' bill is a constitutional amendment, which, you know, certainly would would trump any local authority. So, yeah, we could prohibit the localities from collecting sales tax on groceries and allow them to raise sales tax on other things. Again, we don't, you know... We don't think that that's particularly helpful to to people. Um, There have been proposals to simply take the sales tax off groceries and let the education Mm. budget take the hit. Um, And Mm. we, uh, again, have thought that our schools are struggling so much, and particularly right now our schools are struggling, that pulling $500 million out of their budgets just is not a solution. 
Right. Uh, I wanted to jump in here because if, if for those of you listening or watching, if you haven't seen this plan that Alabama Arise has put out that Carol mentioned, uh, I really encourage you to check it out. Uh, Arise, their team has done a great job putting together some graphics and showing you exactly uh, who would pay more taxes and who would pay less. Uh, and I distinctly remember, you know, getting the flyer in the mail uh, and seeing it all laid out visually that the vast majority of us in Alabama would actually pay a little less in taxes. Uh, because, you know, again, it's being able to write off your federal income taxes uh, is really just helping the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for most of us, that deduction is not going to trump what we're paying in grocery taxes, uh, you know, every every day, every week, every time mm-hmm. we're going out and buying food for our family. So, um, you know, and I get that the current legislation being discussed by Senator Jones is, is a little different than that. It's a little bit of a compromise measure, but um, it's, it's really a common sense plan. Uh, right. It's a way to where you could you could not only replace that revenue and make sure the schools are, are made whole in this adjustment, but actually have additional revenue for the state to be able to use on something like expanding Medicaid or other, you know, good, legitimate uh, funding purposes that we've discussed here today. So, uh, yeah, again, I just want to encourage folks to check that out. It's not at all a radical proposal. It's a very common sense proposal that for most of us would would mean slightly less paid taxes every year, Mm -hmm. uh, but would mean you know, an extra help for those of us on on the lowest end of the income spectrum, uh, much less of a hit every time you go to Walmart, Kroger, Publix. Uh, meanwhile, you're talking about a very modest increase for those who can certainly most afford it. Okay. Um, and I, what I, I I'm just going to editorialize here a sec. I, I'm disappointed that I don't see more from the education community to come out loud in support of a proposal like this. Um, Because as a former educator myself, I know how important it is that the families we're serving in our public schools be able to afford a decent life. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is one way to to provide some direct material help to the lowest income families so that they can uh, make sure their cupboards and fridges are stocked uh, so they, they have more money to spend on clothes, um, other bills that they have, whatever they may you know, need to do uh, to, to have a decent quality of life. So this is a way we can impact the quality of life of the families being served by public schools. And, you know, it's a way to ensure that this issue is resolved. It's off the table. And it's a way to ensure that the education trust fund benefits while the rest of the state also benefits. And I think in Alabama, the education community has been very shy about speaking on broader issues of the political economy and really connecting the dots between the poverty and other quality of life issues we suffer here in the state and the academic performance. Yeah. Uh, because the state of Alabama and its leadership love to you know, do these report cards and failing school lists and other ways to, you know, show to the public that using their metrics, uh, our public schools are inadequate. And yet the very obvious thing, the thing you learn in like Education 101, your first class in College of Education, is the way in which 
socioeconomic factors outside of school determine what's really happening inside the school. Um, it's no surprise that the schools that are quote unquote failing also happen to be the ones that are almost entirely poor students, almost entirely uh, racial minorities, uh, you know, higher percentage of English language learners and, and on and on. Um, you know, it's very common sense, but it, it's something that, um, you know, I, I'd like to see the education community get a little bit more vocal and, and really partner with groups like Arise to enact some broader tax reform so that we can actually start to address some of these issues before they these kids get to school. Uh, because know, if they're... Yeah, go ahead, Carol. Oh, I was just going to say, it's a real truism that a hungry child can't learn. And given the um, increased cost of food, um, you know, because of inflation, um, you know, it's it's really this is the time to do this. Um, this is the equivalent of two more weeks of groceries for families. And um, I, I agree with you. We wish the education community um could support this um we think they will come out ahead uh actually that income taxes are more stable than sales taxes um i think there is a bit of a you know bird in the hand um attitude um that giving up revenue expecting it to get replaced is scary i understand that but it's still the right thing to do. And you're right for families. And I think for schools, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and then the, um, I think that the irony of the only states that have, the, the only states that have grocery taxes are ostensibly anti-tax Republican states. I think that kind of shows who they don't want to tax. It's not that they have a principal opposition to taxation. It's that they have a principal opposition to taxation of their donors (laughs) and of of the people that they represent, which is not working people. Um, So, and it's so frustrating. And and it's, I mean, if, it, I can't, you know, we've gone a decade with Republican supermajority governance in Alabama, and uh, they have cut lots of taxes, but they have not cut this tax. And we've been okay with this tax being on the poorest people in the state, and the idea that we would even be hesitant to shift that tax onto people who can more readily, readily afford it, if we're going to have the tax at all then we should have it on the people who can afford it as opposed to the most poor people in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Carol, I, the we talked about, before we went off the radio, the American Rescue Plan, and we talked about some of the ideas that the Republican majority was pushing um, for the expenditure, and you, some of them were good, some of them you said were not so good. Uh, if can I, I'd like to wrap our discussion with... What Alabama Arise, what is the agenda that Alabama Arise would put forward for the use of the American Rescue Plan dollars? Yes, I think that's a really great question. And if you people will go to our website, which is alarise.org, you can find there our principles on what American Rescue Plan money should be spent on. 
Um, we, uh, I actually have a blog coming out next, early next week that lists some infrastructure proposals that we've got since we think this money is going to get spent on infrastructure. One of the big ones is on um, water system improvements all over the state. Uh, and we do think that is one of the things the legislature and the governor are, are proposing. We we can get behind that if the um, water system improvements are targeted to the communities that need them the most. And right. by that, we're really thinking of some of the Alabama Black Belt counties like Lowndes County and Perry that Wilcox that have terrible water system problems, terrible wastewater system problems, and that need an infusion of investment that the local communities just cannot afford to fix right. those wastewater issues. Um we, we know the legislature is planning on spending a lot of money on water system improvements. We hope they target them to the right places. Uh, and we're going to be watching that real closely. Uh, we're in general support on broadband. Now, I will say the infrastructure bill uh, has been passed and that money is coming right behind the ARPA money. There is so much money for uh, broadband in that bill. Um, that, you know, I'm a little hesitant about spending a lot of the ARPA money on it. But, you know, uh, but we agree that that's important, again, particularly for our school children and our schools, which are, you know, many of them are remote right now. Um, we think that there are things we need to do for people who are still struggling that are really kind of human resource issues. Um, we'd love to see bonus pay for uh, low-wage workers who have been working in places like grocery stores and retail and um, places where they've been exposed to COVID. Um, we very much do want to see investments in the healthcare system. I think I'd said the Department of Public Health really needs some support, and we need to stop the hemorrhaging of uh, our rural hospitals around the state. Um, of course, Medicaid expansion would solve that problem also. Um, but as I said, we can't spend ARPA money on that. Um, mm -hmm. We would like to see um, some of the uh, new money be spent um, on something really boring, but that's really needed, which is to improve the technology used by state government. We all know how awful yes. it was when people could not apply for unemployment compensation, they couldn't get through on the telephone, the computer systems were down, the checks weren't coming. We saw those people sitting in the parking lot at Alabama State University in Montgomery, driving for hours so they could get there and sit there overnight in order to apply for unemployment compensation. That just wasn't necessary. And that the solution to that is a really boring solution, which is called good computer systems. So we think right. is, is an opportunity. It's boring, but uh, if you were you one of those people, if you, you were one of those people trying to call the unemployment office, uh, it will that. it will resonate with you. Yes. Uh, and yes, uh, and also you know anyone who's worked for any government agency, and to some extent even including public schools. You know how poor the computer systems and just technical, you know, it's 2022. Uh, it's time for state government to at least have functional computers. 
It, it is. And we'd love to see one-stop shopping for assistance. A whole lot of people got unemployed mm-hmm. really quickly last spring. They had never applied for food stamps. They had never applied for unemployment benefits. They'd never applied for health care coverage in their lives. Never had to. And then all of a sudden, they were eligible and didn't know how to go about applying for any of the assistance they were eligible for. We'd like to see a one-stop shop where you could simply go to um, a computer um, somewhere in Montgomery uh, and apply for everything you are eligible for. Uh, and That seems so common sense. Yeah, it is right. common it, sense. It really yeah. is. And, and, you know, if you're someone who's been laid off, perhaps for the first time in your life, or, or you are uh, facing, you know, real economic despair, like for the first time ever, and you don't know how to navigate these yeah. really complicated bureaucracies and which agency does what, um, you know, all the different benefits, there's different requirements. Uh, yeah. So even what meager help we have available for regular people, Right. Uh, as inadequate as it is, is often very difficult to actually access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very difficult. You look at the people who are trying to get rental assistance right now mm-hmm. um, and how it's just spread all over. The, who who does it in every city in the state's different. And so, right. you know, we'd like for people to be able to not worry about what agency is providing the service. They can just go apply um, in, in one place. And so we, you know, we're suggesting that the state invest some money in in uh, upgrading our technology and getting us, like you said, into the twenties, tw- at least the twenty first century, if not the twenty second. Right, and that's so. You know, why would you not do that? You know, the only reason to continue to maintain an outdated, clunky, and difficult to operate. Um, system is to keep more people who deserve the aid, who by the metrics of the statutes that appropriate the funds, the only function it serves to have a clunky system is to keep people who are eligible for the funds from the funds. Because if they're not eligible for it, then they won't be able to get it no matter how quick and easy the system that they apply for it is. The uh, uh, that you know, if people want to say that oh there should be less people getting the fun get, getting this help, then they should address that through legislation as opposed to just making it difficult for people who are eligible for the monies to get the funds. So I mean, it's it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, but, it's it, I've always viewed that as a form of sabotage. Right. Uh, you know, when, yeah, and when, when where our our government yeah. does actually do things remotely positive for people, which is unfortunately not enough. Um, it's often, you know, sabotage, whether it's deliberate or not, really doesn't matter to the person on the other end who can't get the help they need. Yeah. Yep. Or Carol, uh, time to I mean, it, right. it takes a long mm-hmm. time. People spend a lot of time on those phones trying to get their unemployment. And uh, as someone who's like had a toddler running around while trying to uh, be on the, be on hold for an hour with state agencies, yeah. it's not easy. And not everybody can do that. Uh, and I'm someone, you know, I'm a fairly well educated person uh, who've, who've and I've dealt with these things on a professional basis. So, you know, if you're someone who you have 
multiple toddlers running around uh, or, or an elder parent that you're taking care of at the same time. Uh, it can just be very, very difficult. And like you said, Jacob, either you want people to get the help or you don't. Right. Um, yeah, that is the that the whether you want people to get help or you don't is that is an issue to be worked out in the parameters of the legislation, not by making it difficult right. to access the help once it's been appropriated. And right. that's like I don't think that's a crazy position. And 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 these people and 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 the people that say that government is slow and it's like not like they're maybe the ones it's designed that make to be it that way. So, so yes, right. maybe they're that's ones, intentional. Exactly. They're the ones that make it so. I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking about right now Louis DeJoy uh, the general postmaster general um, talk implementing uh, implementing policies that are going to make mail delivery slower literally make mail delivery slower and for no re- i mean and, you know and and then people are going to talk about oh my mail is delivered so slow blah so blah, blah, maybe blah, we blah. need to privatize maybe, it right, or exactly. maybe we need to yeah. use fedex and more. it was a conscious decision by these people who hate government to make government more difficult to use so anyway carol i appreciate your time i appreciate you uh going over with us and uh talking some more to us adam you said that alabama arise had a workshop or something that you wanted to make sure that we played. I believe Alabama Rise has a lobby day coming up yep. where they encourage uh, members and supporters to come down and, and learn firsthand in Montgomery uh, about these issues and visit with their legislators uh, and want to make sure you had a chance, Carol, to you know at least share that with our audience and tell us a little bit about that. Well, we do have a lobby day coming up, and I am looking up when it is because I can't remember. It is in February. I can remember that. Let's see. Um, actually, um, I, I do have the flyer, so I can at least help you out on the go. dates you there. Can't do that. Um, so the to participate in person, you need to register online by February eighth. You know, mm-hmm. again, just go to Alabama Rises website, alarise.org. Uh, and you can check that out. And it looks like the lobby day itself is going to be on Tuesday, February 15th. So at least on February 15th, we know there will be some people in Montgomery fighting for working people, even if it's uh, not there all the time. We know there will be a big crowd of folks uh, to do that. So I don't know if you had anything else to, to expand on that, Carol. It's just like a lot. It is a lot that. of fun. And people don't realize how much fun it is to come to an Arise Lobby Day. Um, You learn a lot and it's really enjoyable. We're trying to keep it small this year because because Mm -hmm. of COVID. Um, uh, But we're going to have online options and it's really empowering. It's to talk to your legislator. Um, Most of the people in the legislature are pretty nice men and women, Um, you know, because you have to get elected. Um, and they like talking to their constituents. They just don't know a whole lot about what a lot of their constituents' lives are really like. And so it's a great opportunity to tell, tell your elected officials what you want them to hear from you. So we encourage you to register and to participate. And like I say, we're going to have online options. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Carol. I appreciate it. Well, you appreciate it too. You all take care, and we. I enjoyed this. Thank right. you, thank you. All right. All right. Uh, so we had one more thing that we wanted to talk about, and it was this clip, and it, it and it was just, um, it was just kind of fun. So I wanted, to, and so we're, we're still going to talk about it. But uh, it, it and it's the um, this Dave Ramsey clip um, about 
how he it's not his fault that people are homeless or whatever and it's just it's so funny because it's so like anti everything that conservatives are supposed to stand for so we're going to talk about that and if you want to if you want to talk to us uh we've got a phone number 844-899-8857 844-899-TVLR uh if you want to jump on the line and hang out with us for a little bit but we're going to take a break really quick and we will um We'll do that clip, and then we will roll out. So uh, stay tuned, don't go anywhere, and we'll be right back, okay? You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. Work sucks, we know, but you can make it better by organizing with your fellow workers. For more information, call or text the Huntsville Industrial Workers of the World at 256-651-6707. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855 617 9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855 617 9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. 
With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or DSANorthAlabama at gmail for more information. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. The Valley Labor Report. Labor creates all wealth and all wealth should go to labor my name is jacob morrison and you're listening to the valley labor report thank you for staying tuned um if you want to give us a call and join the program the phone number is 844-899-TVLR that is 844-899-8857 or you could leave us a voicemail through the week so if you listen to the show as a podcast and you're like man I wish I could call in I have some things to say to them Uh, then you can you can call in and you can leave us a voicemail and we might play it on the radio or not it's up to us we have all the power yeah, but the option is there. The option is available to you if you listen to us as a podcast. Would definitely be cool. Folks are welcome yeah. to do that, and uh, we definitely appreciate the folks who uh, participate in the YouTube chat and yep. Facebook chat. Uh, right. It's right. it's uh, a lot easier to do this when we know someone's listening. Absolutely. And, uh, yep. Also, you guys are are great about giving us uh, ideas mm-hmm. and questions to ask and of course uh, as always the technical issues that, that arise from time to time right, uh, right. because we are not uh, radio professionals or you know media right. people uh, it's not what we've went to school for or anything like that we're just kind of figuring it out on the fly so uh, appreciate all the folks who are really cool mm-hmm. about that and understanding about it um, and you know however you're listening or however you're supporting us it's definitely appreciated because uh, you know, I think it's just so important that we have a different kind of outlet here in the state and here in the South, aside from mainstream, mainstream corporate media and uh, press releases from your bosses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, so we we appreciate that. And and if you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is to become a monthly donor. The largest single source of revenue for our program, the largest single source. We have international unions, we have local unions, we've had state federations, but the largest single source of revenue is our listeners. So if you want to support the show, you can um, donate on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report or uh, unionly.io slash o slash TVLR. Um, and we obviously get uh, that money is tight for a lot of us. Um, there's a lot of good causes out there. Maybe you can't spare any money right now, uh, but your support in other ways really makes a huge difference. So little things like uh, liking the videos on YouTube, uh, sharing 
this program, I mean, if you have some folks in your life, whether it's you know, real life or uh, strictly on social media. If you know some folks who might would appreciate this, send us, uh, send them, Mm -hmm. you know, send them to us, Uh, share the link, share the, uh, the videos. Uh, We have some great back catalog interviews. However you can get the word out. uh, It is definitely appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got somebody who apparently like just found our Facebook page and she's been going through a bunch of our posts and, (laughs) <laughs> calling us calling us democrats and saying that saying that we hurt her feelings and stuff so oh. if she wants to call in she's welcome to 844-899-TVLR 844 the number is 844-899-8857 if you want to call in well that's that's interesting i haven't seen those you know i'm i stay off the grid a lot these days i'm, I'm not oh, no it was just like just in the last like 15 minutes she's oh, gone oh, through and oh, commented on oh, like okay. half a dozen of our posts so, um uh well so saying you know that, like, so, sorry to hurt yeah, feelings yeah, yeah. Sorry uh, to hurt feelings but you're welcome to tell us all about your hurt feelings yeah, um, if you would like and, and if you think we're just democrat stooges then you yeah, haven't yeah. listened to enough of the show yet so let's let's so the next thing that we wanted to talk about is um so you know adam you know how generally speaking folks on the left we kind of i consider myself on the left and we kind of analyze and criticize like systems for yeah, outcomes you know, we are big picture kind yeah of thing. We, we we look at the big picture we're less apt to blame the individual um and we look for systemic solutions as opposed to just bootstrappy you know you have to do this on your own or the yeah. only way that you can fix it is on your own so like if almost I, like we live in a society almost like we live in a society right yeah. so like when i see a poor person my first instinct is not to say like oh it's totally their fault there's no reason other than their laziness or their you know whatever that that like they're poor because of themselves that's not my first thought you know of course like people are individuals and people have agency and there's you know there there's always some mix but like i can't fix a person's like their their ideas but we do have we have statistics and we have data and we can say like, oh, wow. So when you do this, like when you implement a policy that like gives people health care, for instance, people are more successful. Or when you implement a policy that um, that gives people uh, retirement pensions as a public policy that decreases poverty among the elderly population and we don't have people like dying in the street of old age. So these are good things, I think, and those are systemic solutions to systemic problems and, and you know, of course, we can always talk about, like, if I'm talking to an individual like a family member, you know, like, I'm going to talk to them about ways that they can individually make their life better, but if I'm talking on a, like, on a systemic level for looking for ways to make society better, I'm going to look for societal solutions, generally. And, you know, I I don't think it's that crazy to want to live in a better world and a better right, right. society, better community, better state, better country. I mean, that seems, uh, I don't know, it just seems natural for me that, hey, I want everyone to be a little bit better off tomorrow than they were today. Um you know, I, I don't see that as a, a very radical idea, uh, but apparently it is uh, to, you know, desire that your community actually get better. Um, right, right. Yeah, so um, that's kind of generally speaking how we see the world. Um, 
And on the flip side, generally speaking, conservative, like anti-collectivist, anti-like pro-individualist people, they're like the opposite of that, right? They say that, oh, nothing is ever, if you, if you ever look at systems and society, you're totally negating your own, your own ability to make the world better or your life better. Well, like it's all about you. It's all about you. You, you, there's not a society. There's no such thing as society. You're an individual and you choose how your life end up. It's all about you. It's all about you. So that's generally kind of how things go. So that is like not exactly what Dave Ramsey says here. So let's go ahead and listen to what he says. Okay. I own rental property, single family homes, uh, among many other properties that we own. And if I raise my rent to be market rate, um, that does not make me a bad Christian. Uh, I did not displace the person out of that house if they can no longer afford it. The marketplace did. The economy did. Um, the ratio of the income that they earned to their housing expense displaced them. I didn't cause any of that. And so you are not displacing them. You're taking too much credit for what's going on. Uh, if they need to move to a cheaper house because they can't afford they're going to move to a lesser house. Because if they move, they're going to pay market rent. So the, he says there... And that's all that I wanted to see the clip. That's he said. It's like he doesn't even say like he he doesn't even say. Oh, my expenses increased, so I had to increase the rent. Oh, it costs more to hire labor to get people to fix problems at my rental property. He just says this this uh, 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 amorphous invisible market the market a house next door to me sold for hire so now i have to increase rent even though my expenses have not gone up at all it's just like a house 10 yards away from me happened to sell for a high price and so now all of a sudden i get to charge my tenants higher more 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 money for i haven't done anything i haven't worked any harder i haven't paid any more i just literally i get to suck more money from my tenants because the house next door to me sold for more money i mean can you imagine like uh and like on a certain level on a certain level what he's saying is like there's some truth to it, as in, if he were not the landlord, there would be another landlord that would be doing the same thing because of these market forces, and because you can charge higher rent, somebody would, many people, most people, most landlords would, in the situation that he is in, but he's not explaining why he he doesn't, he doesn't have to make that decision, he can choose to not raise rent when his expenses don't go up. He can choose as an individual, as a Christian, to not raise rent when his uh, expenses do not go up and to not suck the blood out of his tenants literally just because he can. Literally just because he can. And he's totally absolving himself of his personal responsibility mm. he's totally mm. totally absolving himself of his personal responsibility and blaming everything he does 
on society and on this this amorphous system that we live in and saying it's okay for me as an individual to act this way because other people are acting this way. Because other people are acting this way, it is fine for me to take more money from people that are poorer than me and even though it's not costing me any more money, I'm not putting in any more effort, I'm not working any harder, I'm just taking more. I'm just taking more and that's okay because of society because of the system because that's the system we have right and it is really convenient how that kind of flips on and off depending on context and in a way that uh can try to absolve you of any guilt you may feel right um you know and and because i like the way you set this up before the clip I consider myself to be, you know, a materialist, and, and I am someone who does look at things from that systemic angle. Um, but of course, we all have our individual choices and, and consequences from those choices, our own personal responsibility. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that I, I, conservatives love to harp on that phrase, but I don't know anyone who has, who just believes there's no such thing right. as personal responsibility, no matter. Uh, how deep you go down like a a Marxist historical materialist kind of viewpoint. Um, And I think that we can acknowledge multiple true things. It is true that that is the system we have. And and you're Mm -hmm. right, that probably another landlord could have fulfilled that role. In the big picture, we're all, you know, cogs in a machine. But we are also all human beings um, who are living among other human beings and we all make our own choices in how we operate in this machine so yeah you can't have it both ways and and if if personal responsibility is real um you know don't you have some responsibility to try to uh live the most ethical life you can right in the system that we have while at the same time seeking to change that system to be a better one Mm -hmm. for human beings and our values right yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, so, you know, I mean, we can, and, 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 you know, we've been calling back to the first thing that we talked about today, like, uh, a lot, you know, so we can say that, um, maybe there are systemic reasons that the police officers are, um, you know, that they, that it's not even their individual responsibility, quote unquote, that there is a disproportionate amount of police violence, but it is on an individual to not murder. Like, even though there are systemic yeah. forces pushing you towards that, it's still ultimately your decision to pull the trigger. Absolutely. And, and for anybody else, anybody else who commits murder, there are, and, and even more so for poor people, for, for, for poor people who commit murder than for cops, there are systemic forces that push you into gangs that, uh, and, 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 and that do all these things and that, that make you more likely to commit crime. Right. But of course, that doesn't absolve you of making the choice we can talk about okay there are systemic solutions to these things and we can make crime go down through attacking systemic solutions but that doesn't absolve the person who pulled the trigger of pulling the trigger they have to be held to account and we can fix things moving forward to make it so that other people are not pushed to that same decision 
But of course, it's still their ultimate responsibility and their agency to pull the trigger. And it is exactly that same problem. Dave Ramsey, it is his ultimate individual agency, his individual choice and his personal responsibility to be a fair and just <laughs> landlord as if such a thing, you know can exist and it's not illegitimate in its own right to be a landlord. Um, I think it's a very important distinction, though, because you're right. And I agree with the example of the police, because, um, you know, as as critical as I am of the police, I recognize that there are people uh, who join the police department with the best of intentions. Uh, Maybe their heart was moved to do this uh, because of some experience growing up or maybe they just really believe hey this is the way i can protect and serve my community i you know i have a dangerous neighborhood i grew up in i want to make it safer um i want to save a cat from a tree Uh, you know whatever whatever may motivate them to to pursue that i recognize there are probably people like that uh they're not you know i'm sure they're just as there are plenty who are flat-out reactionary bigots who join Mm -hmm. for the pure uh, reasons of getting that kind of power uh, and ability to inflict violence without repercussion, right? We can acknowledge that both people exist, um, but as you said, so if you are that good-hearted person, you're a reform-minded person, you join the police department because you're going to change things from the inside and make it better, there will come a time in your life, probably uh, not too far into your career, where you're on the precipice and you must decide do i bow to the pressures of the system and or do i you know and abandon my values or do i stay true to my values of of trying to make things better and and be good um that that contradiction will arise and and so i think at the end of the day if you bow to that system and as a result someone is murdered someone is you know, injured, someone is falsely uh, accused or falsely incarcerated, that's on you. Uh, whatever was whatever was in your heart and, and whatever uh, systemic pressures you felt there, um, you know, from the top down, that does not absolve you of the harm done. Um, and I know that's mm-hmm. probably a really rambling long way of reiterating that, but it does resonate with me. I mean, and, and uh, I'm sure I'm not the only person involved with this program or listening to this program who has tried entering things to make it better right you know right how many of us have tried participating in uh, electoral politics to try to change things or uh, working inside institutions to try to change things right and and it, you, you're probably going to run your head into a wall yeah. and <laughs> you know you do reach those those moments of contradiction between your your rationale for being there, your values you, you hold, and the uh, pressures of the, the system or institution you, you're in. Um, yep. So, you know, the Dave Ramsey types, they, they love to pick and choose. And um, like I said, conveniently, it, it seems to be relevant when they can absolve themselves of their own guilt and actions. Yeah. Uh, but not I mean, he others. even in the same clip, he even says like, "Oh, it's not my fault that they're homeless; it's their fault that they're homeless." He even says something well, about you don't how, know that. like, he, he says something about how, like, um, that that it's the ratio of their income to the rent that made them that made them homeless. As if and it's, it's like, all this like mystical thing yeah. of which humans if, have no part in. Yeah. in yeah, it's it's it really is both ways where, you know, we mystify all this. The economy is not um, this thing that 
you know, came from from God, that uh, came from on high, that we have no control over. And, and that is sort of the neoliberal standpoint, right, that we've lived under for the last 40 years or so, that basically th- there is no alternative. This is just the way it is, uh, the market overall. Right. Um, so, yeah, you know, so it's like a mystification of what's really happening with the with the political economy and people's real material lives and the decisions and policies that are made that affect that. Um, but then, you know, if you're on the, the losing side of that, well, it must just all be your individual choices. Right. Um, yeah. And and Jeb in, in the in the chat said that, uh, you know, basically asked, does his point show that the spate of smash and grabs, you know, the looting and all this stuff that has been shown on right wing media, does that mean that they are actually justified due to inflation and the free market adjustments making items unaffordable? And of right. course, Ramsey wouldn't think that because uh, that's. You know, because uh, poor people stealing deodorant is much worse for society than me as a rich person making a poor person homeless. Like, of course, right. obviously, even though even though normal people like working people would say that a person being homeless is a worse outcome than Walgreens having one less stick of deodorant. You know, right. Yeah. And I think a lot of it boils down to that, uh, you know. How do you feel about your fellow human beings, you know, and again, going back to the living in a society, uh, I know it's, you know, kind of a meme joke at this point and everything, but we do live in a society uh, and, and, you know, it is hard to um, to get people to believe in empathy, Um, you know, certainly when. You have folks like a Dave Ramsey who have such a massive audience and there's so much money spent uh, trying to convince us that, no, we don't live in the society and it is all about you. And and it really doesn't matter uh, what happens to your neighbors. Right, right. If they're homeless, to hell with them, right? As long as you can still afford this nice subscription for $19.99 a month plus tax and fees. You know, All right, folks. Well, that's all we had for you. Thank you for listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. This has been the Valley Labor Report, and we will see you next week. Bye, y'all. The Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. 